there is this whole conversation here about like how people report on the court. And one of the things about that is people generally assume that by the time something gets to the Supreme Court, the facts are facts and mm-hmm. we don't have to go back and think about them again. That's not a norm that I was operating from. The norm I'm operating from is ADF is not an organization that plays strictly with the rules, let alone with the truth, potentially. Mm-hmm. Patrons, thank you so much for supporting our work. It's just the five of us, and we could not do any of this without you. If you'd like to support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod, and you can help us out a little bit more by sharing the show with your friends, posting about your favorite episodes, picking up a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore, or requesting it from your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So today, I am here with friend of the panel and returning guest, Melissa Jira Grant. Melissa is a journalist, author, and filmmaker, and a staff writer at The New Republic. She's the author of the book, Playing the Whore, The Work of Sex Work, and she is also currently working on her next forthcoming book called A Woman is Against the Law, Sex, Race, and the Limits of Justice in America. So we've asked Melissa back on the show today to talk about a really kind of wild scoop that she reported on regarding a recent case before the U.S. Supreme Court concerning a web designer who refuses to make websites for gay weddings and was seeking an exemption to state anti-discrimination laws. And as I mentioned, you know, Melissa's reporting broke a really fascinating part of this whole lawsuit open that was previously not discussed and not really known. And Melissa first wrote about it in June for The New Republic in a piece called The Mysterious Case of the Fake Gay Marriage Website, The Real Straight Man, and the Supreme Court. And this is also an ongoing story with more reporting to come. So we're going to talk about that today. Melissa, welcome back to the death panel. So great to have you on as always. It's so good to be back. And honestly, given everything we've discussed before, this at least has a veneer of humor to it. So hopefully we can enjoy the deeply bizarre and surreal about this case um, Mm -hmm. at the same time as we're getting into the stakes of it because, you know, the stakes are not they're not good. No, they're not. But I mean, the last time you were on, we were laughing and promising each other at the beginning of the episode that we would find, you know, if a funnier topic to touch on next time. And and we found it, um, unfortunately. Yeah. As I mentioned at the top, we're going to be talking about the reporting that you've been doing in the 303 Creative versus Elenis case that was just recently decided in the U.S. Supreme Court. So this was concerning a Colorado web designer named Lori Smith, uh, who, as I said, you know, refuses to make websites for LGBTQ weddings. And that's kind of the framework of the uh, point of the lawsuit is like suing for access to the right of refusal. And ultimately, uh, the Supreme Court did rule 6-3 in favor of uh, her right to refuse to make websites for gay weddings. And at the center of this lawsuit was a really small detail. Um, according to court filings, a guy named Stewart had contacted Lori in September 2016, you know, about getting married to a guy named Mike. And, you know, he had his phone number and his email address and the URL of his own website. And all this was cited in the filings. Um, 
So this is where it gets weird, right? <laughs> yeah, deeply weird. You decided to call Stewart using the contact info in the court filing and ask him about his inquiry to Lori Smith that apparently allegedly occurred in September of 2016. And it he said that never happened. Um, so I want to start at the beginning here. But, you know, before we dive into sort of the context of the case, can you just sort of sum up for listeners who might have missed this going around after your initial story broke? You know, what exactly the fuck is going on here? Um, <laughs> this really has become the what the fuck is going on here story. Like, I don't know if you have seen or remember. I think we talked about this, the Coen Brothers movie, Burn After Reading. Mm-hmm, there was mm-hmm. this incredible scene at the end where they're like, what the fuck did we learn? I don't know. Not to do it again. What do we do? Like, it, this is so many bizarre situations that don't immediately point to a bad actor. There could be a ton of bad actors here. So I'm caveating what I'm about to say with don't expect this to make a ton of sense. Yeah. So in 2016... According to Lori Smith, the plaintiff in this case, she receives this inquiry um, from somebody who wants her to make a website for a same-sex wedding. This, it's kind of in the middle of the case. I don't know if I would say it's in the center of the case, but it comes up throughout the case. This filing with this alleged inquiry from Stewart um, made it to the Supreme Court and lower courts actually had some questions about it. But beyond that, it was never taken as anything. But, well, there's a legitimate market out there. There are people out there who want her to make these websites. And it the role that it played in the case was essentially saying, like, look, there's a chance that this law could be used against her, even though it hasn't yet. Yeah, the demand is there. It's like a demonstration of, of the potentiality for a market, right? Correct. And that it's an imminent threat that like, oh, mm-hmm. look, she's not even offering wedding websites yet. And this inquiry came in. So the gays are just pushing their weddings. on (laughs) This woman who has no past, um, you know, wedding websites for same sex couples or any business related to the queer community on her website. Why you would go to her? I don't know. But allegedly they say someone did. Um, I was entering into this case very late in the game. I was writing a piece early in the week when we knew the decision was coming down because the Supreme Court term was ending. You Mm -hmm. don't know exactly when something is coming down, but there really wasn't any further it could go. So this was like the last one, right? It was one of the the last one of the last ones. This and um, student debt, I think, were the last Mm -hmm. two. So we were writing it. It was positioned at the New Republic as sort of a like, hey, maybe you haven't been paying attention to this case, but here's sort of the gist. Um, so that when the opinion comes down, you know, you you know what this means. And I was going over both other people's reporting and then original documents in the case. And I have to give some credit here to Mark Joseph Stern at Slate, who's a dogged Supreme Court reporter. This is his whole beat. And, you know, he had a story that was unlike a lot of the other stories that came out about this case, 303 Creative over the you know last months. It was argued at the court in December 2022. So there was like a bunch of reporting then, but it wasn't even getting the kind of attention um, that a case like Bostock v. Clayton did um, mm-hmm. earlier uh, in 2019, an earlier LGBTQ rights case that was pretty significant. Um, so it kind of it felt like it had flown under the radar. It wasn't getting a lot of scrutiny. And Mark Joseph Stern had this line in his piece about like, and she's never even been asked to make a same-sex wedding website or something like that or she's never she's never even like made a same-sex wedding website something like that Mm -hmm. and you know I had replicated it in my piece and I was like well 
but is that true? <laughs> you know, like it just, it was just a fact check sort of moment as I was like getting ready to, to edit the piece for the last time. Like, I'm pretty sure he, he's correct and he wouldn't make a mistake. So like, but I wonder if I can substantiate that. And so I started going back through the documents. There was this really funny moment during oral arguments where Justices Sotomayor and Kagan were getting super frustrated with Lori Smith's side. Um, you know, her case was we've never made a website before, but we're going to ha- ask you to make, you know, changes to the law that will be setting precedents based on websites we haven't made. So they had these mm-hmm. like, mock-up websites. <laughs> <laughs> there were, I have to say, I kept this out of the reporting, but not impressive. I just don't really see a market. Um, but regardless, you know, so they're they're like in this bizarre position having to debate these like made up websites. And the levels of unreality around this case are getting bigger and bigger. You know, you have Sotomayor being like, I don't understand like our story or like funny anecdote about um, us getting together as a couple or our special day, like, please explain to me like why these things would put you at risk of breaking the law and starts pointing Lori Smith's side to specific pages in this like obscure appendix that like nobody would have looked at unless like they were working on the case. Mm -hmm. Um, So I pulled it up because it was funny. Like, this is seriously how this started. Like, it was just like, wow, like, what are these hideous websites that she maybe (laughs) says she wants to make? (laughs) I should go look for those um, in the deep, deep, deep in the court filings. And it was in the course of looking for those um, that I found this, this email. And, you know, I certainly haven't always been like this, but I think it's like one of those things that sort of activates in your brain if you've done journalism for even a hot minute. Mm-hmm. You see a phone number in a court filing that's not redacted. It's like, who wouldn't call it? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, this was like not a deep investigatory piece, but like, you know, we have another couple hours before we hit publish. If I can like tie up this fact, then I'm going to tie up this fact. And so I did. And the way I presented the call, um, I texted first to be polite. And Stuart texted back immediately. We got on the phone. It was not a long phone call. And I fully expected him to be like, oh, God, another reporter. You know, like I keep hearing. Mm -hmm. And this was the very first. He'd heard of it, which was the first red flag. And then he went on to tell me that he had no knowledge of this. He certainly hadn't filed it. And he was actually married to a woman and had been for more than Mm -hmm. a decade. Hmm. So that was just where it started. Right. Yeah. And I think the reason that aside from being, you know, a possible fabrication in a case that made it to the Supreme Court, um, it fit into this larger story of the group who brought this case, Alliance Defending Freedom, who we've talked about many times um, mm-hmm. before, you know, the people behind Dobbs, the people behind the anti-trans laws that we're seeing in multiple states. They also were the ones bringing this case on behalf of Lori Smith, this web designer. And, you know, it just the whole case felt fake, I think, to a lot of people, too. Like, what well, you're going to the Supreme Court to ask for relief from something that hasn't happened yet. Like from a hypothetical. Yeah, exactly. And and now here's this thing that looks really fake. So that was the context in which I presented it. Like, and I still think that the more important thing here, the far more important thing here is ADF and their project. And Mm -hmm. this is just sort of a too juicy detail to not report as part of that, you know, and and sort of exemplifies, I think, a lot of suspicions that people had about this case, that it just wasn't rooted in reality. And having now been reporting on it for several weeks, I still don't feel any more rooted in reality 
um, in this case. And <laughs> I feel like anybody who has to sit across from ADF in a court of law um, or build a case against them before they even get there, ideally, um, should be investigating every fact and every phone number in those documents because it didn't take that much work to figure out that this was at least not what it was presented as. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, the the whole sort of framing here and the context that you give in your piece from June of the original filing from September 20th of 2016, which happens at a U.S. district court in Colorado, um, you know, there, there are so many sort of sketchy details that even are evident. And, and as you said, sort of in your setup, like the lower courts looked at some of these things with a lot more scrutiny. So can you talk sort of a little bit about like what the case history here was and, and sort of how it got to the Supreme Court? Sure. So Colorado and also this is kind of case where somebody's trying to discriminate against people who want to hire them to provide services for a same-sex wedding, that might be ringing some bells for people. Um, Masterpiece Cake Shop is a very mm-hmm. similar case to this, brought by the same people, trying to overturn the same legislation that was a non-discrimination ordinance that was passed, you know, many years before either of these cases was brought. Um, it wasn't like it was a new law um, to be challenged in the moment. Like an example of that also involving ADF might be um, there are laws that they have gone on the books to bar minors from accessing gender affirming care. Mm-hmm. If you were a minor living in one of those states, yeah, you have a pretty strong case to like challenge that law because it goes into effect because the harm of that law going into effect is immediate and you can, you know, it's going to happen. It's not ambiguous. So this sort of strategy of like trying to construct a case that would allow them to say, look, my client who wants to not provide services in this particular context is in threat of imminent harm. Mm -hmm. With Masterpiece, you know, there was at least a cake. (laughs) Right. Like in this case, we have no wedding. We have no wedding customers. We have no... No couple. Right. Yeah. But in Masterpiece, there was at least a little bit more reality to it. And that's a whole other conversation. But the main thing to take away from that is that ADF didn't get quite what they wanted. (laughs) Masterpiece, there were some separate questions um, that didn't get addressed. And, you know, this case was introduced before Masterpiece made it to the Supreme Court. But they're very much sort of following parallel and at some points intersecting tracks. So the case that they presented to the district court was not compelling <laughs> to most <laughs> judges. Um, like, I don't know if you, you could just like sometimes read an opinion and just be like the shade of it all is coming across. <laughs> they are not, they're not on board. Um, specific to this like inquiry to build a wedding, a wedding website for a same-sex wedding, they objected to its relevance. They also said, look, like, Mike and Stuart, those could be women's names. How do we know if those are two men? Like, good attempt to knock it down, but, like, they had a much stronger um, claim that they could have been making that this wasn't a real inquiry. Um, that's the only time it shows up in in the context of an opinion. The rest of the opinion, the overwhelming majority of the opinion was like, this is just meritless, you know? Like, this thing that you think might happen to you not only has it not happened to you, but if it were to happen to you, your free speech rights are not actually being violated here. You know, like if you want to make 
wedding websites for people, you cannot discriminate who you make them for based on their identity as part of a protected class, period. And all this window dressing that you're trying to do, oh, the state is compelling me to make wedding websites for same-sex couples because if I don't, I'll be violating the law. It's just garbage. Like, you know, no one Mm -hmm. is telling her that she can't make a wedding website that had on the footer of every page, the only legitimate marriages are between one man and one woman. Mm -hmm. She could do that as long as she offered that to anybody who wanted it. And the people who bought it would probably be self-selecting, right? Right. So that was really the focus in the beginning. It was like, your speech isn't actually being constrained or compelled here. Um, But that's the argument that ADF ultimately succeeded on with the Supreme Mm -hmm. Court, is that, you know, she was, according to Neil Gorsuch, in this position where the state of Colorado was compelling her to create messages supporting something that was against, you know, her beliefs to create expression. Um, And in this instance, expression is making a wedding website for a same-sex couple that would be identical to a website she would make for a straight couple. But the very act of making the website, they argued, um, constituted affirming that wedding or saying it was real. And Mm -hmm. her lawyers went so far as to say, like, she does not believe these weddings are legitimate. So for her to make a website for them would be her doing something false and against her beliefs. So it's interesting, like the thing that like was least compelling to the lower courts ultimately seems to be what this case's legacy is going to be. Yeah. I mean, what I found so interesting about that initial filing was the framing that uh, Lori's website design was religious speech. Right. Like this is this is kind of like a very specific thing they're talking about in this initial district court filing. I'm thinking of um, uh, this is paragraph four from the like initial complaint reads, Lori believes that God is calling her to promote and celebrate his design for marriage by designing and creating custom wedding websites for weddings between one man and one woman only. And if you then um, keep going and you look at, for example, in the same complaint, paragraph 14, which reads, solely because of Colorado law, Lori and 303 Creative are refraining from expressing their views on God's design for marriage on 303 Creative's website and from offering their services to design, create, and publish wedding websites, expressing their desired message, celebrating and promoting marriage as an institution between one man and one woman. To restore their constitutional freedoms, this is now paragraph 15, to speak their beliefs and not be compelled to speak messages contrary to those beliefs and to ensure that other creative professionals in Colorado have the same freedoms. I mean, what a load of fucking crap. My gosh, like your wedding website, hypothetical capacity to create what sound to be like ugly ass wedding (laughs) websites that gay couples wouldn't want anyways, that that is speech. Like poor graphic design is, is free speech now. All right. Okay. I mean, I might need you to give me like a. I know this is like not important and unrelated, but I might need like an image description of these websites. I mean, how <laughs> bad are we talking? I have to pull it up, um, you know, because it, it, it does merit discussion. And I mean, I was if anybody else through this um interview can experience the joy I experienced listening to oral <laughs> argument with Soto Sotomayor being like, I refer you to page 51 of your own brief. I was like, well, page 51 is probably really exciting. I'm going to go check that out. 
These are the delights of reporting on the Supreme Court. I mean, I should say these are the delights of reporting on the Supreme Court where like you're not, I don't know, um, hanging out at Ruth Bader Ginsburg's house shooting super soakers with Justice Alito or whoever that was that the (laughs) NPR's celebrated Supreme Court reporter was doing. Like there is like this whole conversation here about like how people report on the court. And one of the things about that is people generally assume that by the time something gets to the Supreme Supreme Court, the facts are facts and mm-hmm. we don't have to go back and think about them again. So that's not a norm that I was operating from. The norm I'm operating from is ADF is not an organization that plays strictly with the rules, let alone with the truth, potentially. Mm-hmm. And so anything they claim should be subject to some investigation. OK, I have found page 51. So she's. Oh, <laughs> These what these sites, I mean, I just don't understand. I mean, I understand her strategy. I should say this. I understand why she's claiming that this is free expression. I understand why she's also sort of making two arguments there. Like one is that this expression is connected to her religious beliefs, but they're not making the argument that because they stem from her religious beliefs, they are protected. They're making mm-hmm. a bigger argument. They're just saying because she feels this way, this Mm -hmm. is free speech. Mm -hmm. And that if you if she were to offer a wedding website that was available to everyone, um, then you are compelling her speech, which isn't even, you know, usually a slam dunk. Like compelled speech is usually an easier case to make. But in this case, it's, you know, dubious if that was the case um, that she was being compelled to do anything. Unfortunately, you know, she prevailed in this and the quality or the sincerity of her belief in her own work has nothing to do with it. But I I cannot find it right now. I'm so sorry. I'm going to try to describe this from memory or you can give me a sec to pull it up because they are just... Whichever you'd prefer. Terrible. Actually, hold on. Okay. Lori. Lori, Lori. She um, seems to be really into the color teal. Let's start there. She, you know, I mean, it looks like a WordPress template that like okay. has some idiosyncratic kerning. Um, I don't think it would read very. It reads template. You know, yeah, it doesn't it yeah. doesn't read like this is a deeply original work. Um, and I, I love the person who emailed me after the fact to be like, she can't claim these are unique works. These are just WordPress WordPress templates. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. legally, it doesn't really make a difference. It still counts as her expression. But we can say it is not a very creative expression. It's painfully generic. It's an uh, expression of uh, a small business model. You know yes. what I mean? Like it's an expression of the uh, business that she's created. It's not um, like it's not, you know, I, I don't think that you could actually even like, you know, as you've mentioned, the suspension of disbelief required for the facts of this case to make sense are just unbelievably huge, right? This is a huge stretch to say, like, ADF's case merited even getting up to the Supreme Court in the first place, that ADF's case, like, deserved the decision it got, or that any of these legal strategies, you know, in and of themselves are treated with the kind of, like, legitimacy and respect that they are, right? Because I think a lot of people have done a lot of work uh, in order to kind of ignore all of these red flags that, you know, as you've laid out, are quite glaring. I can't put myself in the mindset of the earlier courts, you know, the district courts in particular. They were the ones who were, like, dubious about the email inquiry. 
Um, but I do think that there was a degree to which when they looked at this case, the whole thing felt so sketchy that honing in on one particular sketchy thing almost maybe didn't feel so important. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's important. I think it would have been very important for them to point out that, like, look, like this person says she's at imminent risk from this law being, you know, from violating this law that she can't. One of the things they said, which was amazing, um, we can't even reply to this email allegedly from Stuart, this inquiry that we got um, through our website that, you know, showed up in her inbox. I can't even reply to him because if I were to do so, I might be breaking the law. So the (laughs) the inquiry sort of like helped them build this case that like she Mm -hmm. was in legal peril at all. Based on Mm -hmm. that alone, I think it should have gotten more scrutiny and they should have checked it out. Um, But unfortunately, by the time this case left the district court, It's in the lower courts where the facts themselves are sort of hashed out. And unfortunately, the defendants in this case who were represented by the Colorado Attorney's General's Office, essentially the people being sued were like a civil civil rights enforcement body that, you know, ultimately it came down to the attorney general to represent them. And they stipulated to some facts at this lower court level that Essentially, what that means is they can't go back later and say, actually, just kidding. We didn't think those things were really facts. Um, like I could see them, the defense, thinking this thing is built on tape and dreams. You know, like we really don't have to mount a huge fight here because clearly these people are just going to lose before it even gets to the merits of the case. Like they're going to lose on standing. Like there mm-hmm. is no injury here. There is no harm. There's no conflict. There's no question to take up. And like in a normal universe, in a normal legal universe, as much as I don't put that much faith in our our judicial system, that would be enough. Like a a pretty normal reading of standing, like you you could see this case, you could see their argument being correct that this case should never have have made it. But that is not the judiciary we have Mm -hmm. right now, right? In another universe, the Supreme Court would never have taken this up because it's, again, built on very shabby things. Um, not addressing a real controversy. The Supreme Court can only take so many cases. Mm-hmm. The fact that they took this at all is an indicator that things are going very wrong at the Supreme Court and it's the judiciary more broadly because this should have never made it to them. But the fact that they took it up says to me, especially in the context of Dobbs and everything else the ADF is pushing right now, um, the Supreme Court is willing to take things that look a little sketchy because there's a supermajority who sides with ADF. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I mean, part of me, you know, feels like maybe for folks who aren't sort of aware of the broader ADF strategy, because I know, you know, we've talked about it a lot, but I think that that ADF does kind of fly under the radar still. Um, and I, I do think that the, the, the ways that these cases are connected flies under the radar. And it makes so much sense to me the, the way you're sort of describing it as like the idea that, you know, the the defense in, in these initial filings might have really kind of rolled their eyes. And this, you know, is is taking place initially in 2016. Um, the Masterpiece Cake Shop, you know, that doesn't make it to Supreme Court until 2018, as you were saying, you know, the timing. Like, I feel like people were really still willing to go and sort of publicly disbelieve the fact that that what ADF was doing was like coordinated <laughs> um, or targeted. And 
And I think it comes down to, in a lot of ways, like the norms around the court and the norms around the law and and the Supreme Court in the United States, just in the way that people kind of confer this <laughs> uh, undue respect to what is ultimately an illegitimate institution that is is sort of here co-signing and giving power to ADF who have been on a legal crusade for, for many years now. But um, I feel like if we could just sort of go into sort of how this case fits into their bigger agenda and sort of how... The current Supreme Court has um, been, you know, very favorable to them. Mm-hmm. So ADF sort of imagines themselves to be the Christian rights version of the ACLU. And that was more or less what they were founded to be. Their original founder said that, you know, the ACLU is out there co-signing wickedness and depravity and there needs to be a response. <laughs> um, in terms of the size of the organizations, I mean, like ADF's budget is quite small compared to the ACLU's even looking at last year. I mean, ADF, I think it was somewhere around like 60 million that they took in. And that's like ACLU's like losses in a year, you know, like they're they should not be punching above their weight, I guess is what I'm trying to say. The only way that ADF succeeds is the degree to which they succeed. They say 40 percent of the cases they brought to the Supreme Court or something like that have succeeded. Um, you know, the reason they're punching above their weight is because things are tilted in their favor. Mm-hmm. These are not. Yeah. These are not legal geniuses. <laughs> there are people that I've talked to like they're not they're not bad lawyers. Um, they may be engaging in some misconduct in this case, which I would love, you know, an investigation into. Unfortunately, that's not my purview. The Bar Association would have to get involved in looking at that. But, you know, compared to, say, like the Federalist Society, if, if mm-hmm. people are familiar with them, like their whole remit is let's use elite law schools and sort of, you know, get our people to get prestigious um accreditations, accomplishments, let's like get them into a certain social network where they're, you know, moving with influential people. Um, you know, this is how you get like Clarence Thomas going on fancy vacations. Like this, it's that's like the Federalist Society universe. Um, these are the people who have excesses of dark money to put who they want on the Supreme Court and get them to do what they want them to do. ADF is operating in kind of a different universe. Uh, Mm -hmm. Someone I was talking to this week described them as movement lawyers, which they kind of are. Oh, interesting. They haven't necessarily gone to the top law schools. They aren't necessarily respected. Like, I'm pretty sure that unless they were, the only reason that the Supreme Court justices who align with them even know who they are um, is because they see them there. Um, Amy Coney Barrett was an instructor for an ADF sort of boot camp for lawyers But the milieu of an ADF lawyer only intersects with sort of the elite conservatism of the Supreme Court at the Supreme Court, as I understand Mm -hmm. it. Um, And I've been talking with folks who are doing some like deep research into the history of ADF and trying to understand like how how we ended up here. It seems like the motivating thing across everything that they're doing, whether it's against LGBTQ rights or whether it's against abortion, whether it's against trans health, is rooted in a Christian fundamentalist worldview. And I've described them as Christian nationalists because they are willing to use the tools of the state to get everyone else to conform to their version of Christianity. Mm -hmm. There's lots of definitions of Christian nationalism, but that's what I mean when I use it in relationship to them. Like they believe that they have the moral authority to bend the courts to their will. Like Mm -hmm. I think that they are more likely even than Federalist Society folks to be true believers 
in that project. Um, so they're in a way, I can see why they would bring cases that weren't that tight. I could see why they would float on sketchy facts. I could see why they wouldn't poke too deep into the background of someone like Lori Smith. They're more interested in creating like a sympathetic character mm-hmm. around Lori mm-hmm. Smith and all of their all of the people that they they bring cases on behalf of. I think like kind of the 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 typical ADF sort of main character that they they want is oh this person isn't anti-gay they just don't want to be compelled to say things like gay marriage okay mm-hmm. they're engaged in this kind of hair splitting that they then present as free speech don't you want everyone to have the right to not say they agree with gay marriage or not don't you want to protect that for everyone I mean they this is where their cleverness and their intelligence I think is most displayed you know their their ability to sort of pass as not as extreme as they are Mm -hmm. um but just as one final sort of parable of adf back when in 2016 around the time actually that this case was filed like september 2016 that was a wild ride there was a lot going on (laughs) there was you know this incredibly contentious presidential election by the time this gets into court we're in trump's first and only term the ADF um, at the beginning of the Trump presidency wasn't really on board with him. Michael Ferris, their CEO, like he did not join those other Christians who rode the uh, elevator up to Trump Tower in New York and had those, you know, behind closed door meetings with him. He took kind of a step back from groups like the Heritage Foundation or Family Research Council, all these like titans on the religious right, the Christian right specifically. By the end of the Trump administration, he is drafting a lawsuit challenging the results of the 2020 election. Mm. So it's, they, I think, have radicalized in these intervening years. And that might be part of the reason why it's a little easier to see what their moves are right now. And, Mm -hmm. And we can talk more about this, but I think the story that's sort of coming together right now, at least sort of in, you know, on the more liberal sort of resistance side of the political universe is open to the idea that the Supreme Court is illegitimate mm-hmm. in a way that I don't think I've I've seen. Um, you know, they are open to the idea that these judges are being swayed by money and their fundamentalist beliefs. And ADF now is sort of arriving in that moment. And what I saw people doing with this story is using it to bring those two things together. Mm. Oh, these guys are bad actors too. It's not just that they're Christian fundamentalists, which they are, but they also appear to be cheating. In a moment when we're hearing stories about Clarence Thomas maybe cheating and not talking about, you know, all kinds of gifts and bonuses he's getting um, just coincidentally to being on the Supreme Court. Right. So it's Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be to ADF's um, peril to be connected with that story. They are very unhappy with my reporting. Um, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah, they 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 of all things accuse me of trying to attack the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. To which I would say, you guys are LOL. doing that yourselves. <laughs> Just telling people about it. <laughs> Says the people, you know, like pushing all of this bullshit. I mean, I think part of, you know, part of the power that ADF has also had is, and this is something we've talked a lot about over the last couple of years now. Um, it's kind of hard to believe it's been mm-hmm. that long, but wow. But, you know, it's, it's that there are also a lot of people in the media who have given them a lot of credibility. There are a lot of sort of 
you know, apparatuses for um, their work to sort of spread under this very both sides-y. I mean, as you were saying, this is this is really kind of cleverly being framed as like an, an issue of, of coerced speech, right? Or mm-hmm. line in the sand regarding freedom. But, you know, they have a lot of legitimacy. I mean, we talked on, on this show at length about you know, in an episode with Vicki Osterweil, uh, Jules and I were talking about the, you know, criticisms of the New York Times coverage of trans care in general. And, you know, you have things like narratives that originate, you know, in interviews with members of ADF that then sort of then like lose their context, right? And and sort of end up identically reproduced in, for example, like New York Times coverage as a sort of, oh, well, we need to stop and look at the facts on trans care. And so you see these kinds of convenient arguments that ADF lawyers have used in various cases, you know, to try and make these, um, you know, technical, like, here's the reason why what I'm doing is not actually hateful, actually, you know, here's why I'm doing is not actually eliminationist and like should not be against the law, right? Mm-hmm. Um and you see those kind of taken up as common sense frameworks, right, within within media representations, even beyond just the coverage of these cases themselves. And I think that's also a, a kind of huge part of their power and also, you know, where this legitimacy is also reflected, right? Like the idea that, well, if it got all the way up to the Supreme Court, someone would have noticed. And if it got all the way up to the Supreme Court, somebody somewhere will have gone through it with a fine tooth comb to the point that they've been able to check it out. But like, it, it kind of plays into this idea that I think about a lot, um, which is a kind of fantasy of competency or a fantasy of, of surveillance and and certification that just doesn't fucking exist. Whether we're talking about, you know, whether or not, um, you know, we're able to tell certain things about a body, like to certify that someone is definitely not sick, right? Like when mm-hmm. a doctor tells you, you're fine, there's nothing on your blood work, right? Like that exists within a whole broader context, but that sort of framework of um, negation and denial and legitimacy is very powerful regardless of its relationship to reality, right? And at the end of the day, people are fucking harmed by the actions that ADF is doing and by the attendant messaging as it's socially reproduced throughout society, throughout media, and like interpersonally beyond that too. Yeah, it's, it's hard. It has been years. And, you know, one of the attorneys I talked to who's worked on, you know, civil rights cases for queer and trans people for years um, described this as sort of like a boil the frog moment, you know, in parallel mm-hmm. to the way the Trump administration laid out that what happened with Dobbs and in the years since, I think, is a moment where maybe some people realized that they were boiling alive. Who mm-hmm. haven't? Um, the the respectability that's afforded to anything to do with the law, you know, like oh my gosh, the fact that there are lawyers who'd be lawyering in a way that was corrupt, you know, maybe on like a TV show, maybe in some small southern town or something. But I still feel like there's like way too much mystique and um, sort of legitimacy granted to people just by dint of them being involved in the judicial system. Um, mm-hmm. Unless you're like a public defender, right? Mm-hmm, <laughs> and it's course, a different right? story. But you you get... Then you're on the take for big crime. Exactly. <laughs> so much money in big crime. That's why public yeah. defenders are very wealthy. Famously um, very wealthy and, you know, yeah, totally fine and not struggling. Definitely not the reason we like only got public defenders in the federal judiciary only recently. So we <laughs> we are in this sort of... This this like standard operating procedure of like, you know, the law is neutral. 
the law is rational. The law is connected to reality. And but what if it's of, not? Yeah. Right. And like, I, it's, that's, that's really it. It's like, I, I did not not go on cable a lot in the last two weeks and have a piece of art behind me that says laws aren't real um, by accident. Like, mm-hmm. I, I think this is the thing that is laced through my reporting and is certainly like part of my book, but isn't necessarily part of every news story that I write is like, does not all of this indicate how malleable, corruptible, whatever you want to call it, how open to interpretation and subjectivity and not just by chance, but as structured by power mm-hmm. <laughs> that the law is in reality. And sometimes I think that like ADF knows that and this is them taking advantage of that. Um, you know, sometimes I think that, you know, maybe there is a way to have robust civil rights laws that would be enforced in a way that would protect people. But even if that were the case, the way that people's rights and access to life exists far outside the courts. And there's ways that, you know, the courts can't guarantee your rights that feel pretty evident at this point. Like, I think that's also what's so difficult about these cases is like you're fighting for a right that would require you to go back to court mm-hmm. to claim, right? Mm-hmm. All of the stuff around employment discrimination that came up in Bostock. And you've talked about this a lot in the context of disability. Like, even if you get the victory at the Supreme Court, what does that mean for you in mm-hmm. life? How can you actually make that right real? And, you know, increasingly, I'm just looking for ways outside the context of the judiciary to do that. Um and and even lawyers who work on this case, these cases will say like, oh, it's up to social movements to do the rest of the work. And it's like, well, why are we like putting all of our social movement energy into like valorizing lawyers? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it, this seems like you've had Dean Spade on to talk about this at length. Um, so, yeah, like I I just look at this moment as like a parable of like that problem. You know, yeah. it's, it's a it's a very shorthanded way to talk about a much bigger threat. Um and I think the thing that that's frustrating about it is I don't want people to think it was just about, you know, a funny email. Right. <laughs> that there is or, a, there is or you know, a non-existent email. Even. Exactly. Right. Yeah. There was, like, I'm, I'm almost certain that an email does exist. I will say something that. Had, right. Almost certain that there was an email. Um, what that email really represented um, is not what we were told it did. But and the email isn't on file too. It's a it's a you know kind of certified. Oh, it's copy. a cut and yeah. paste of an yeah. email into probably a word document that's now a PDF. And like I'm not a forensic investigator, but were I um, presented with this email as part of the evidence record for this case, I would say, cool. Like, can I have your server logs? Mm-hmm. You know, like prove to me that this is an unchanged copy of what actually came to you. And it actually did come to you because that was what I first thought when I saw it. Someone could have just typed this. Right. Well, and Stuart is, you know, Stuart is a graphic designer himself. Um, his contact information is available online, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's, um, well, there, I think yeah, it's- I'm not being cute when I'm saying I don't know who sent the email because I really, yeah. I have I have been talking to him and talking to other experts. And I think that's the thing that's like the most destabilizing about all of this is like, would it have helped Lori Smith for this email to have been real? Arguably. So why wasn't it in the original filing? Why right. did it only come later? Like, that's the kind of thing that made me think there was something fishy going on here because this wasn't included in the original case. In fact, the email, if it's correct, is dated one day after the original case was filed. 
If you're going to fake an email, though, <laughs> why wouldn't you fake it in a way that would help you more? Right. This is the burn after reading cycle that I'm in. I'm just like, right. these people were not very smart at whatever they were doing. If they were trying to do something that would advantage themselves, what if it's even more chaotic than that? Mm-hmm. But bottom mm-hmm. line, somebody should have asked before I did. Right. Well, and I think, you know, what's so important is that it actually probably didn't matter whether it was real or not, right? Like to to a lot of the people who were in the positions of power within the judiciary who had to make the decisions that they made in order for this decision to have gone the way that it went, you know, like it doesn't matter to Clarence Thomas if the email is real or not. I mean, if you put this in the broader context, for example, of like how you've seen court decisions that say, okay, when you're like discriminated against um, in terms of employment for disability, right? Like you can sue for damages, but we're going to raise the bar for psychic damages so fucking high that, you, that you're basically, you know, sort of only entitled to like the the sort of smallest itemization of the harm, right? Like mm-hmm. we have so much burden in the legal system put on, you know, frameworks that are supposed to kind of take a hypothetical situation and translate it into the kind of actuarial harm that courts operate with, right? And And translate that into some sort of like, you know, financial remuneration at the end because so so much Mm -hmm. of like the court system is about you know saying who owes who what money and what when basically um you know whether that's you know sending sentencing someone to jail which is ultimately like a financial extraction from that individual in multiple ways um or if it's you know in a civil suit saying here are the literal damages that party a owes party b or whatever Mm -hmm. But like the the burden of proof of these things is so high, right? And so the fact of the matter is, is that whether the email is real or not doesn't even matter in so many ways. But the fact that the email and the circumstances of this entire case and the case itself, right, beyond just this one, you know, tiny fishy slice of one part of it, the whole case itself, as we've been talking about, you know, is subject to a different type of burden of proof than if you or I were to bring an ADA claim. For example, a hundred percent. And and I think that's maybe the far scarier thing for people to sit with. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that it was never about the fact, right? That it was about getting a certain result. And just as we saw in the and are still seeing in the Mifflin Houston case, which we've talked about in Texas, um, also an ADF case. Mm-hmm. One of the same lawyers is actually involved in that one is this one, Aaron Hawley, um, wife of Josh Hawley, U.S. Senator J6 fan. Um, you know, in that case, they are just making up things about the FDA, just just wholesale, like making things up about the FDA. And the judge in that case is doing everything to signal that he will let them do that. <laughs> and that's what I think we're seeing here. And that's the like kind of horrifying thing. It's like, well, how do you how do you fight that? Mm-hmm. You can't go and be the smartest lawyer in the room and win against that. You could be a really dogged paralegal maybe and call some phone numbers. But even then, even if they had discovered it, right? I'm sure ADF would have had an explanation for it. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that they would have found a way to keep the case alive despite it. And and this is sort of the bigger question for me about ADF's motives is, do they just not care about bringing strong cases? 
because they can continue to prevail without them being strong? Or is it somehow to their advantage to bring cases that are built out of air that are by the time you are getting to the point of looking at an opinion and thinking about how it might apply in the future? And there's no facts. There's no in, there's no conflict to point to to be like, well, what if this conflict is like that conflict mm-hmm. in that case? Um, and I don't know the answer to that. Like, I, I think that's sort of like galaxy brain legal strategy that I don't even want to think about. But I do think it's fair to say, like, you can't fact check ADF into submission. Mm-mm. That's not what this is about anymore, if it ever mm-hmm. was. I mean, this story that you wrote has really gotten around. Obviously, um, you know, <laughs> as you mentioned, like you've been doing all these mainstream like cable news appearances with your law isn't real uh, poster, like well, beautifully displayed in the background that even my blind, blurry eyes could see it in, you know, watching MSNBC on YouTube. But <laughs> it ha- it was really fucking wild to kind of see, you know, uh, more... <laughs> mainstream very mainstream media figures sort of seize on this as a very meaningful discovery that you had made and as a no and I'm not trying to say that it isn't obviously no but I know like, exactly what you're saying yeah but like it's like people took it as if it had a kind of self-evident significance just in sort of stating it out loud and and, and it was so fascinating to watch all of the different ways that folks in the mainstream media were sort of grappling in real time with what you were telling them I mean you know, in the sense of sort of what the response has been to this reporting, I'm sure you've gotten the gambit, but sort of what is the sort of dominant, you know, maybe like formerly notorious RGB mug having kind of uh, <laughs> liberal media framework? Like what was that kind of standard response that you got from that kind of crowd? Um, and, and calling it RGB instead of RBG in this context is completely oh beautiful because the only there's this like horrible <laughs> stock photo thing. It's not stock photo. It's like ADF created it of Lori Smith allegedly creating a website that's literally just her with like the color dropper panel from Photoshop open on an iPad. <laughs> I love that I said RGB. Yes. You you were hitting on something correct. Uh, there, I don't know. I mean, I'm just like, why? How did you guys book an abolitionist? Do you not know? Um, no, it, it's, I think where I kind of landed in, the, in these responses to it, the responses that, were like, oh my gosh, like the super mainstream responses that were just like, how did this ever happen? Isn't this wacky? He's straight. And oh my God. Wow. And I, I did fact check that, by the way, because I didn't want to engage in bisexual invisibility. Um, Stuart is actually does identify as heterosexual. It's not just a straight marriage. These things matter. <laughs> but, <laughs> but nobody on TV really cared about that. Um, yeah. And then I would try to sort of drag the conversation to ADF. It was really important to me to talk about ADF and what they were doing in the context of a larger Christian nationalist project that we were all suffering through. Um, But that didn't seem to be as interesting as Lowell straight guy didn't send the email, Mm -hmm. you know, like, and, and I, you get what you get. Like, I think the thing that has been heartening is hearing from other reporters, not to sort of be navel gazing about it, but like, people who are looking at Supreme Court reporting differently, seeing this story as part of this larger conversation that has been unfolding maybe ever since the Dobbs leak in a mainstream way, um, but certainly on off the back of the ProPublica reporting about Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito, this sense that this institution has been given way too much deference. And if what I'm doing can sort of like bolster that project, like 
that does feel very rewarding mm-hmm. that that maybe people will sort of be more skeptical going forward and you know the next time someone from ADF talks to the New York Times they don't get away with being described as just like a conservative law project i mean mm-hmm. i don't know i just listened to an entire five part podcast that translash media did about how that will never happen <laughs> in the new york times but um you know the 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 institutional culture at somewhere like the times is a lot like the institutional culture of the court where you're not supposed to rock the boat you're supposed to go along you don't question these facts um you know smart people did this how could they make mistakes and and all of that ends up empowering the worst actors mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. even if i like am sort of want to scream and say it's not about the straight guy like i think we literally had lined one of the follow-ups it's not about the straight guy um <laughs> and Stuart was like i'm fine with that because i'm really annoyed that people are making this about me and not about the bigger issues and i was like thank you Stuart." yeah um you know it's not over. Um, it's it's not over for me anyway. I like continue to dig into this. I continue to get tips from people. That's incredibly rewarding. Anybody who wants to share anything with me about ADF, um, even if you have to do so confidentially, if you go to my website, there is information on how to reach me securely uh, at melissajiragrant.com. Um, I don't know if there's ADF insiders necessarily listening to this podcast, but you know, I I want to to stay on the story of ADF long after this email story fades. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think because part of this is part of like a a larger conversation that we've been having. I mean, what you were just saying now, like hit so heavy um, just and brought to mind COVID, right? Like sort Mm -hmm. of in, in this sort of implicit um, trust, so to speak, or the sort of deference to institutional authority or deference to normative authority, you know, it empowers the worst bad actors, right? We've, we've seen sort of all sorts of different frameworks that sort of maybe initially seemed innocuous develop into these sort of broad moments that have seriously shaped policy and the landscape of the political economy of health and will continue to for a long time. And that's the thing, too, is that, you know, these decisions and these these court precedents as they're set, you know, they have their initial sort of impact and then they begin to create like legislative and legal history, right? And that's also part of what's really important, I think, about the work that you've been doing is that, you know, <laughs> if at the end of the day, let's say, you know, 70 years from now, there are still courts and America is still real, like then if if this kind of like digging never happens, if the reporting you've been doing never happens, if this kind of stopping to actually like pause and reflect on like what the fuck ADF is actually doing um, doesn't happen, then what's allowed to stand is like the New York Times coverage of it, right? Like the institutional actors who have the kind of resources for things to become part of the historical record. I mean, I think about this all the time as I'm sure you do, I mean, like, as well in your own research for for your work, like the book that you're working on now, like, part of the struggle that I have um, in my own 
like archival research studying independent patient groups and, and things like, um, you know, solidarity based uh, institutional organizing is that a lot of the materials and things that folks made um, as part of these movements were destroyed, right? Like mm -hmm. um, psychiatric survivor zines and things where you had like small magazines where, you know, folks were coming together and, and trying to just spread an idea within one institution, within one facility, and, and they were cracked down upon and these things were sort of erased from the record. Or even when they didn't face repression, you know, these are s often small peer-led organizations and, you know, they're doing ongoing work, um, you know, maybe doing peer-led harm reduction work and, and peer-led group therapy in the Lower East Side in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, there is no fucking archive. There is no record of a lot of this work except for, you know, a piece here and there. And what's allowed to stand is the kind of dominant narrative of like, what happened in that era as per, you know, what um, the scientific and, and professional literature says about what was successful and what wasn't successful in terms of psychiatric treatment during that period, right? Like, these alternatives, they're never allowed to stand in the historical record. They become erased from the realm of political possibility through this kind of, like, ahistoric erasure and, and sort of delegitimizing these positions because they don't exist in the archive. And I think that's very much how groups like ADF expect their legacies to be able to operate. You know, ultimately, like the facts of these cases don't fucking matter. <laughs> and what matters is, is the precedent that set the story that that precedent tells. I think they're very invested in, in narrative, you know, like this is a case specifically the 303 case. This is a case where there's only one person being sort of harmed. There's only one sort of victim at the center. It's not like in the Masterpiece Cake Shop piece where you have a real couple, a real cake, a business owner versus a real couple where you can kind of stand them up next to each other and say, here's the person being denied, you know, like pick a mm -hmm. side, right? Like this isn't yeah. even a situation where you have an opposing uh, victim or or party, right? It's here is like, individual at the center of the story, Lori Smith, her religious beliefs and her victim status as part of a hypothetical, but there is no sort of opposing party to identify with or or want to, you know, to organize around or to sort of, you know, like remediate the harms that Lori Smith has done, right? Because everything's hypothetical. And I think that's intentional. I think that that's a rhetorical strategy that, you know, reflects the kind of conservative Christian, uh, Christo-fascist kind of like understanding of how history works, right? Which is that like power begets power and they're building, you know, a long-term um, revanchist legal strategy that is, you know, unfortunately becoming, I think, an increasing part of um, American governance. It's wild just to beat up on the New York Times again for a moment. Oh, yeah. <laughs> their their piece sort of retrospectively looking back at the Supreme Court term tried really hard to sell this idea of, well, ultimately there was moderation. Yeah, which is, right. <laughs> yeah I mean, just on the question of affirmative action alone, um, let alone everything else that happened. Um, I don't understand how you can make that argument unless you're literally just doing you know, as the courts supposedly do, but definitely don't do. I'm just calling balls and strikes here. I'm just the umpire. I'm just racking up who's got more on their side. And it's like, how on earth does it serve the public interest to be told that, don't worry, it all worked out okay in the end. They somehow found their way to the middle. Um, my, <laughs> like, it's, I, it's like, I can't relate to it all. I'm not, I'm not being 
like entirely sarcastic when I'm like, no, but really, how does it help people? Like, I can't understand why as a reporter, you would waste your time mm-hmm. doing that. Um, particularly if you have the resources of an institution. like Because you love, you love the way boots taste. Yes. Well, you know, you might maybe on a certain level, you know, you will not retain those resources. Right. Um, you know, unless you, you operate in a certain way, but you know, you made your bed. So ADF <laughs> <laughs> absolutely is playing the long game. They described this as a generational win. And that is language they've been using for some time. I mean, they've called the project of rolling back row a generational win. They are looking at killing uh, same-sex marriage, overturning the 2015 case before the Supreme Court. They call that project getting a generational win. They know that we aren't going to get much of a different court for some time. And Mm -hmm. they can continue to push their agenda aggressively, given this court. Um, It's not hopeless. Like they're, you know, not to be like Joe Biden, do something. But like we could be trying to actually change the makeup of the lower courts so that perhaps there was more of a roadblock in this Mm -hmm. instance and in others to come. Part of me is just super resentful of even having to fight these people like Oh, is is letting people know what happened in this case going to Im- meaningfully improve the lives of, of queer people in this country? I don't think so. Chipping mm-hmm. away ADF's legitimacy might ultimately, but like I think there's so much more work to be done outside the legal arena. Um, and every time, to bring it back to what you were saying about the archives, like that makes it so tangible that that like where change is made and how people are transformed is not happening in courts. Um, that by the time you get there, everything's sort of set in stone anyway. And it's just about like who can incrementally win over the other side, particularly in, in civil rights cases when they're not even arguing facts anymore. They're just sort of arguing about what the law should be and who makes the more convincing argument. Um, everybody there though already believes what they believe. I just, I find the courts a sort of dead institution mm-hmm. and I would much rather be Look, I don't know. It's very humbling being in the archives too. Like seeing, I, I get so excited when I see that somebody like saved a zine that they didn't write, mm-hmm. and like you can sort of see it in their papers. It's like, oh, this is something they wanted to hold on to. It's certainly informing the stuff like I'm holding on to. Um, I don't want anybody to be able to look back at this moment and say like, oh, well, they just went along, mm-hmm. you know. And it's it's just it's a hard register to be fighting in, like at the level of the Supreme Court, and then like I don't know what our day-to-day life looks like outside the context of that, what it means to be looking for a generational win on a planet that's on fire. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just, this is a very disorienting time. And I, I like empathize with how disorienting this story was. Um, I just hope it doesn't stand in for like the larger, more disorienting situation we're in, which is admittedly a lot harder to wrap your head around. Yeah. I mean, you thought you were reaching out to ask a talented graphic designer why he would hire an untalented, you know, graphic designer in a different state for his wedding Mm -hmm. website. And you ended up with a fucking mess of a kind (laughs) of um, object lesson in the law as a um, kind of collective social fantasy about power and control and normality. And I know for some people, like, I mean, watching you do, I've I've really enjoyed watching you do these mainstream media appearances because you can really sometimes even just get the vibe 
of like how much people are really struggling psychologically and mentally mm-hmm. with the illegitimacy that they're grappling with here. I, I, I know that there's always this kind of like search for proof of, of, of sort of conservative hypocrisy, right, that goes yes. on in, in liberal media. And, you know, I'm sure so many people for this, for them, this is maybe like that kind of smoking gun. And and I know that we're always saying here, like, there is no smoking gun, like, that's bullshit. But you have, um, you know, I think this, this beautiful moment that happens so often when you're talking to people about your reporting on this, where, you know, you can tell that like, the, the host or the reporter or something that's talking to you is sort of like, trying their best to stick to whatever they've pre-written, but they've got like thoughts in their head that they're struggling with at the same time. Like, and you get this kind of panicked look of like, well, what the fuck are we supposed to do about this? Right? Like, how does, how does this sort of fit into a liberal worldview? And I think part of what's going on and why it's taken so long, for example, for the idea of the Supreme Court as an illegitimate institution to kind of take hold, despite all of the fucking evidence for decades and decades, right? Like that we've been, especially even just in the last like six years, what we've ended up with. But I mean, like there is no reason that in the year 2000, the fact that the Supreme Court was illegitimate should not have been like a sort of major point of realization, right? Like there was enough history by the time we hit Bush v. Gore for that to be like a huge conversation. But, you know, what we're sort of, Grappling with now, I think so many people sort of don't know how to be a liberal in a world where the court doesn't work for them. Does that even make sense? It absolutely makes sense. It's a lot like 2020. You know, Mm. you guys can't really mean abolish the police. Mm -hmm. But really, we do, though. Yeah. You know, like, and the, the kind of existential loop that that can throw some people into, you know, people who are sympathetic to it, who had no idea that that's the way the world could look if you wanted it to people who like just cannot imagine being safe without the police having to think a second about why that is um like these moments can be i don't know i sometimes i think of them as like a crowbar that can like pry something apart um honestly it's probably more like sabotage it's like throwing something in the gear so they stop for a second and they're going to start up but you have a moment to sort of make another reality and maybe that is like that gap in a host's note cards and what's coming out of their mouth <laughs> like, mm-hmm. what, what am I wait what I have to say is like not even hmm, like because I couldn't give anybody answers like and and I know people like really sincerely earnestly thought well clearly this means the Supreme Court will hear this case again mm-hmm. to the point where you have I don't know a former solicitor general of the United States saying they could hear this case again. And it's kind of like everything with the courts. Maybe technically there is a narrow path by which that could happen. Maybe there's room in the law and processes for that to happen. I don't think there is, but like pretend that there was. Mm -hmm. This court, this court, this court is going to go back (laughs) and say, oh, sorry. Our (laughs) bad. You got us. Backseas, backseas. This is, I keep going back to Alito and his glacier martinis. Um, with, I think it was just like Grey Goose and Glacier was honestly the entire drink. Yeah. I don't know if there was any vermouth or anything else going on in there, but you know, it's, this is, how could you look at the institution as it's currently constituted? Just as how could you look at the police as they're currently constituted 
and expect them to follow procedure. Mm -hmm. And I think that's terrifying. It's, I mean, it's, I guess, to be honest, like it probably was terrifying to me at some point in time. Like I, I voted in the 2000 election. I, I have memories of those months um, when Bush v. Gore, you know, was rolling along without knowing where it was going to go. And and there was sort of the sense of like, well, the Supreme Court, like, we'll just go along with whatever they do. Mm-hmm. That's sort of like that. That's the decider They're They're, you know, the neutral, respectable body. Um, and I'm pretty sure I felt that then. I don't know when I stopped feeling it, but it is like it calls for a different way to fight. And even if somebody on TV had asked me what that was, I probably couldn't describe it. Mm-hmm. Um, Definitely not on MSNBC. No, it's like, can I have an hour? Um, and I, and even then, like, I think it's this is a way to fight that, like, we're gonna have to figure out together. Mm-hmm. No, no one smart lawyer has the answer to this, um, mm-hmm. unfortunately. And when you haven't deferred your rights to the smartest lawyers, um, then what? Yeah, <laughs> you know, like COVID. No one's coming to save you. Yeah. And it's not simply a fact of like, we need to fund public health. Like, no, you know, yeah. I, I think I think it's really, you know, it what it parallels the conversation that you hear in the COVID discourse around what really is the problem is that there was trust and the trust was breached and we need to reestablish the trust and never an acknowledgement of like, what breached the trust? What was the trust before? Was the trust real or was it power over and not, you know, power <laughs> with, you know, you have all these kinds of things that the kind of um, solutionism to these cracks in the fabric of sort of uh, the normal social fabric. Like, oh, I here's think the, one, like we have to get politics out of public health. We have to get exactly. politics out of the court. Yes. Get politics out of the court. Right. Go back to the neutrality where we can allow you know, the court to weigh in on on uh, something like a presidential election and for it to stand with legitimacy. And I, I mean, I think what this really does is, and I know this is a conversation that we've had so many times, is that it really kind of shows you what the function of the courts actually is when, when yes. things like happen, right? You know, it shows you what truly is the court there to do. Decide the truth, you know, deliver justice, quote unquote, no, this is a this is about, you know, being an institution that can be a legislative final word. Mm-hmm. Right. And what that final word is doesn't matter. It's the fact that it is available as a final word. And so what so many people are sort of worried about when they're worried about the legitimacy of the court is what do we how do we sort of deal with the fact that what we've been using is the final word to affirm and reaffirm policies that should not be justifiable, right? Like the sort of justification for that is that, well, oh, sometimes they re- they affirm and reaffirm the things that are good too, right? So then they're mm-hmm. worth keeping. But ultimately, like what that should show you is what the court actually does, right? Like they're not there to sort of decide anything. They're there as legitimating sort of final word institution that that is part of how the power of the state constructs itself. So like to challenge the legitimacy of the courts makes a lot of people very nervous because it is a kind of magic bullet answer where there should be none, right? Like it's, right. it's a way of shutting debate down and controlling what is up for debate. And we don't talk about it that way. But when situations like this occur, you know, it, it demands to be spoken about that way. And that really scares the shit out of people. Yeah. Like it's one thing to insist that the Supreme Court should be expanded, which I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but that still invests all of this power 
in this group of people, this still perpetuates this idea that there is such a thing as a neutral body who can come to that, you know, final word. And they've demonstrated in the last year that the final word is not the final word, given mm-hmm. their reversal on row. And, mm-hmm. and I think that was existentially terrifying. It set the ball rolling for where people's heads are at now. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that it would be a mistake to walk away from this moment and say, well, we have to get the far right's influence out of the court. I mean, like, yes, we should get the far right's influence out of everything. Um, <laughs> but mm-hmm. the, there is, what if there is no neutral court? What if right. there is no perfect Supreme Court, whatever you want perfect to be? Mm-hmm. It's a lot easier to say, well, the problem is the wrong people have too much influence over the court. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the the things that I still don't know if it fully applies to this problem, but is my guiding principle for just about everything else. So let's try it. Um, would be to look at this from a harm reduction perspective. Mm-hmm. That's Chase Strangio talks about the work that he does in the law as a harm reduction perspective. I think, you know, all of the years that I spent doing work that was like actual harm reduction work around sex work and drugs and HIV, that's why I care about the law, where it took me into um, into the law because the law was a harm that we had to address. Um, this is why sex workers and drug users are fighting for decriminalization, not because they have giant lofty ideas about the law, which they do, but like, because it is an immediate harm in their lives. And I think like, it's maybe it's easier. It's not an easier because that work is still ongoing in the United States, it's, you know, incredibly slow going compared to other countries. But that, that attitude towards the law makes sense to me. You know, like we are here to basically remove the law's power mm-hmm. from our lives bit mm-hmm. by bit. The weird thing about this case, and this is why I'm kind of challenged on it, and it's brilliant. You were saying before, like, there's no victim. Mm-hmm. It, it forces us to make Lori Smith the victim. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no harm to be prevented. Like, the reason to care about this case is because of the impact it might have. But we don't even know what that is yet. We can guess that it, it might make it a lot harder for people to bring anti-discrimination claims if now there is some sort of basis on which a person can say, no, 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 I didn't refuse service to you because of your identity. I refuse service to you because it would be compelling me to speak counter to whatever. It would be a violation of my First Amendment rights to have to welcome you. Um like we haven't, we're not there yet, but like, I think it's a lot harder to get people activated around something where the impact is unknown. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, people I know who were really activated on 303 were people who were plugged into everything else that ADF is doing and saw anything they could do to erode ADF's chain of successes was worth doing. Mm-hmm. And I think from that standpoint, like they have not been able to do a full victory lap on this one. This, yeah. this is going to haunt them now. Everything about this case, not just this. Other people were saying this case was fake long before this email came out. Um, but they know the power of narrative. And I think they know that that narrative has now attached itself to them. Mm-hmm. I love. I mean, honestly, that's part of what I love about this is really kind of watching Watching the fervor over it and the way this, this has spread um, has made very clear that what seemed like it was going to be kind of a nerdy quirk of this case that maybe, you know, was something that 
folks who like, you know, like us who are already following the ADF, we're already heavily invested in sort of trying to pick apart their sort of uh, revanchist agenda. I, you know, it's nice to see it reverberate and to really see like, okay, this is sticking to them. And I think in, in kind of the 11th hour, your reporting on this has really forced them into a kind of spotlight that they were taking pains to avoid, I think. And that you can't underestimate the value, I think, of really annoying the fucking shit out of your enemies. <laughs> yeah, I'll take that. This was so much fun. Melissa, was there anything that you wanted to get a chance to make sure that we talked about that we didn't get a chance to touch on? No, it's great. I mean, this is really the first time I've gotten the chance to like unload the whole sort of the meta side of this. And so to the extent that people found that interesting, thank you for listening. Um, I mean, I would just say like literally stay tuned. Um, Mm -hmm. There's more to come. You're working on a piece right now. I'm working on a piece right now. I don't know exactly when it's going to drop. It will be soon. And if there are lawyers out there who are interested in aggressively pushing back on ADF claims, um, I would love to hear from you. I'm trying to figure out what my reporting could look like um, based on what's moving. As far as I see it right now, I think the parental rights cases are the worst in terms of, you know, people just stipulating things about their own trans or non-binary child for the purposes of suing a school. Um, who they claim harmed their child by recognizing their name and gender. It's, those are like popping up like exponentially faster now than even a year ago. But lawyers see all kinds of stuff um, long before the press do. So my my inbox is always open. Mm-hmm. Listeners also, you can follow Melissa on Twitter and keep up with her reporting on this at Melissa Jira. And patrons, thank you so much for supporting our work. If you'd like to support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore or request it from your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.